Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to our November edition of the construction webinar uh, series coming to you live here from Lois Law Firm. Um, we're coming on to the end of another year. For those of you joining me for the very first time, my name is Tashia Rasul. I am a partner here at Lois Law Firm where I defend workers' compensation claims arising from uh, construction accidents. Um, I oversee a team that handles only construction claims. I'm also the author of the firm's uh, construction defense uh, handbook, which is a plain English handbook regarding um, uh, an overview of construction claims and issues that constantly arise in construction claims. Um, for those of you who have been following me for the past couple of years, thank you. Thank you for coming back. And if it's your first time here, welcome. Uh, this month, we are going to focus on um, calculating exposure in multi-jurisdiction cases. So if you've been following me or know anything about how we handle our construction claims here at Lewis Law Firm, we uh, coordinate with General Liability Council not only for a strategy, but also to see how we can resolve claims, that is, settle claims um, at a value that makes the most sense for the client, uh, that saves them the most money. So today we're going to talk about the factors that should be taken into consideration when calculating exposure. I'll do a very brief recap of Kelly and Burns, um, just to show you uh, how exactly they would apply and uh, why it's necessary that we actually take those calculations into account when um, determining what your potential settlement should look like. This is a live webinar, so there will be an opportunity for questions and answers in the end. The box that you would type your question into looks like this. Once you type them in there, they should pop up in my end. Um, I'm sure I'll have enough time to answer your questions, but if not, I'll get back to you via email and um, definitely get you an answer to your question. All right, so let's get into it. The factors to be considered in the workers' compensation claim. Now, we should be looking at the claimant's demographics, age, prior injuries, usually a younger claimant, hopefully. They will heal faster more quickly and get back to work, which would reduce your exposure. But as, we, as we've seen with these construction claims, their attorneys always give them a reason to stay out of work. Undergo another surgery. Um, you need to go get more treatment so we can build up your general liability claim. In any event, we do see some good claimants uh, who are young, who are motivated. They return to work and that definitely reduces your exposure. Prior injuries are also helpful for us to examine because we can deal with uh, apportionment issues which could shave off some liability there also. We should also take into consideration when an MS, whether an MSA is needed. Now we see this very common with our older uh, claimant population. They're just looking for an early retirement when they've been out of work for a while. They're on uh, social security benefits. Um, after a while, they would be eligible to be in Medicare, so we have to determine whether an MSA would be helpful and uh, what the value of that um, MSA would be also. 
Apportionment opportunities, so this goes back to the prior injuries, whether it's a prior workers' compensation claim or even if it's not a workers' compensation claim. If the claimant has an injury that was um, that was existing before our accident and the doctor was making a recommendation for a particular treatment, for example, a surgery, that's something we should be contesting anyway, but that's something we should also take into consideration, especially when considering future medicals in your workers' compensation claim. If it was recommended prior to the claim being filed, you should not be liable for it. <clears throat> Medical status. So is the claimant currently or actively treating or is he just going to the doctor once a month or, you know, just a checkup or even once every 90 days just to keep his workers' compensation benefits going? Uh, surgeries that the claimant underwent, those always increase the value of a claim. Quite frankly, I never get why, because surgeries are supposed to improve the claimant's condition, right? But they're usually um, uh, viewed as a negative. Oh, the claimant underwent surgery, so his, his condition supposedly worsened, or he's not going to get better, so his claim is valued more. Um, any recommended or planned treatment. So if at the time when you're considering settlement, his doctors or are submitting a request or the carrier has authorized, um, let's just say, a surgery, but the claimant has not yet undergone the surgery, he might be requesting that the cost of the surgery be included in the settlement. So we need to take that into consideration also. Medications. Is he going to be med on medications for the rest of his life? Uh, those medications can really drive up the cost of um, a claim. So it's always good to keep an eye on what he's getting, why he's getting it, uh, which doctor is recommending it, and if possible, get an IME to recommend a weaning program so we can get the claimant off the settlement because I've seen situations where the uh, medications can be the reason why a claim is not settled, just because especially if you have to run an MSA, a large part of the MSA is um, based on the medication, and it becomes cost prohibitive. So definitely keep an eye on the medications that the claimant is taking. And your most recent IME report, we should be relying on what our doctor says, right? Claimants rely on what their doctor, their doctors say. So we should definitely be taking a look and see what our doctor is saying about degree of disability, ability to return to work, and the need for further treatments. The overall status of the claim, claimant's return to work status. Did he return to work or is he is he still out of work? If he returned to work, definitely your exposure is reduced because there shouldn't be any um, indemnity benefits to be consider to be considered. Claimant's back at work making his pre-injury wages. Um, he's not owed anything from workers' compensation. Any fraud findings? Any fraud findings would result in, hopefully, a permanent disqualification of benefits. So if there's been a fraud finding and the claimant's been disqualified from benefits, this is kind of like returning to work, whereas he wouldn't be entitled to any indemnity benefits. So that shouldn't be considered or included in any potential settlement analysis. Any permanency findings or potential permanency findings? We should look at... Um, 
the case to see where we are. Are the doctors talking about permanency? Do we have an IME commenting on permanency? Do we have the claimant's doctor, C4.3, saying that the claimant has reached permanency? That's something we should definitely also factor in. What's going to be your exposure if the claimant has um, uh, an SLU or if ultimately an LWEC finding is entered, right? Because especially with the LWEC finding, you'll be subject to liability per the caps, whether it's 300 weeks, 350, 425 weeks. And that's something you'll most likely be stuck with unless the claimant returns to work. <clears throat> Factors to be considered in a general liability claim. So the strength of the liability and damages claim, this is something you should talk to your general liability defense attorney about. Jurisdiction. I've heard so many things about how some jurisdictions are tougher, um, the jury verdicts are higher, whether it's, you know, like the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan. So this is something you should definitely inquire of from your general liability defense counsel. And I know for a fact that they take this into consideration when um, calculating their, their potential settlements value, the value of their claim. Now, how do we calculate the exposure? So we have to look at both the indemnity and the medical portions. So for the indemnity portion, we'd be looking at uh, schedule loss of use and LWEC findings or potential findings. So if there's not a current finding, we try to predict based on experience or based on the most recent medicals, whether it's an IME or even the claimant's medicals, depending on what you have at the time you're contemplating settlement. If you don't have an IME report, I'd recommend obtaining one before engaging in settlement recommendations, unless for some other reason you want to move forward without one. Um, if you don't have one, though, and you're not going to get one, use the claimant's doctor's report to see what they're saying. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, most of the times their reports are unreasonable and leads to um, settlement values that would be excessive or that we wouldn't even recommend. But always take a look, see what doctors finding in terms of like the treatment request, um, the treatment recommendation, uh, the range of motion findings, the, the, the claimant's ADLs, what is he able to do, not able to do. There are times, even though the claimant's doctor is finding the claimant to be totally disabled, Looking at and scrutinizing the reports, the actual findings will be able to argue for a less than total, right? Which you factor that into your settlement value. You wouldn't be calculating your settlement based on a total disability report. You'll be calculating it based on maybe like a moderate or a marked or hopefully a mild or a zero. Um, be sure to reference the impairment guidelines when talking about when when discussing settlement, um, potential settlement values. Now, we've had IMEs come back giving uh, permanent impairments that are higher than what the guidelines say they should be, so that's one reason why we should be looking at the impairment guidelines. Even if we don't have the IME report, we should be looking at the claimant's doctor's report and comparing it against the guidelines also to see what it says. We want the most accurate um, medical assessment of the claimant uh, to calculate our exposure. So when we're presenting an offer to a claimant and they're pushing back with their exorbitant demand, 
we know why, we have a reason why, we can explain to them why the claim is not valued as much as they think it's valued. So the two lines of exposure, the indemnity and the medical, I just talked about the indemnity. The medical is whatever the, the claimant's treatment plan is, future, um, future expected treatment, and also the um, medications that his doctor is prescribing or that he most likely will be taking in the future, whether it's for a few months more or for, quote unquote, the rest of his life. And then also take into consideration prior payments, especially in SLU situations, the payments that have been made to the claimant, those get deducted from SLU, so make sure you shave that off, and then the claimant just gets the balance. In a lot of these construction claims that have been going on for quite a while, we wind up in SLU situations where the prior payments exceed the SLU values and nothing would be moving. Um, but just as an incentive to close out the claim, you might want to offer something nominal to the to your to your settlement value um, to incentivize the claimant to take it and just go away. All right. So your medical exposure, um, if if there's if an MSA is needed, then we'll just have to go by whatever the MSA says. Make sure the vendor has all of the up-to-date medicals that they need to properly assess the value, make sure they know the body parts that are um, actually injured. So, you know, they're, where you're not paying for conditions or body parts that are not part of the claim. Um, if you don't have an MSA, usually it's just ballparking it. Um, we do it based on experience, uh, the type of claim, the age of the claimant, and what the doctor is actually saying. You'll see us in our recommendation saying, well, we'd recommend an additional $20,000 to close out the medicals. If the claimant hasn't been treating at all, um, we will, we'll say, well, because of that, it doesn't seem like he needs more treatment. So just throw an additional $5,000. But if you actually have to get an MSA, that number is a number you'll be stuck with that you're going to have to um, include as part of your settlement if you're going to resolve the medical portion as well. All right, so let's talk a little bit about workers' compensation law, section 29. So in a lot of these um, wrap-up cases, it's uh, where we're trying to do a global settlement, which means we are closing out both the workers' compensation and the general liability claims at the same time. Now, as I'm sure you know, the workers' compensation carrier is uh, entitled to lien reimbursement rights under section 29 which means that they can recover from any third-party settlement. Now, because we're doing a global settlement and it's one common owner, right, for the wrap-up program, it does not mean that we don't take our Section 29 in uh, lien rights into consideration. We should absolutely calculate how much we can recover. And this is used as a bargaining tool when it comes to negotiating uh, the global settlement. So, pursuant to Section 29, the workers' comp carrier that has paid out indemnity and medical benefits, it applies to both, has a lien in the proceeds of any third-party settlement. Now, how does the lien reimbursement work? So, this is where we get into Kelly, Burns, and Bissell. Um, so, Kelly uh, addresses indemnity benefits 
Burns also addresses uh, indemnity benefits, and Bissell addresses the medical benefits. We've talked about this in several um, different contexts, and you know it's usually referred to as just the Burns rate when we're doing the actual calculations. So for Kelly, when the um, when the workers' compensation carrier receives two potential uh, benefits from settlement of the third-party action, that's when that's that's pursuant to Kelly. The first is reimbursement of its current lien, indemnity, and medical, and where the workers' comp uh, carrier would be responsible for ongoing benefits, then it can take a lien against the payment of the ongoing benefits until the third-party settlement is recovered. So in a situation where the claimant's just getting um, ongoing temporary benefits or, um, you know, he continues to receive benefits every month, whether it's partial or total, you'll be able to take credit against those benefits. So Kelly outlines how reimbursement calculations are to be made. It applies in situations where the claimant's future benefits are not speculative, meaning um, we know what the claimant's future benefits are going to be. And the classic example is the SLU um, situation because we know what a 10% SLU is. We know what a 25% SLU is. It also applies in situations where the claimant is no longer receiving workers' comp benefits at all. Um, other examples would be in death benefits. We know exactly what the benefits are going to be. They're not going to change. And situations where there's a permanent total disability, we know the claimant's not going to return to work. There's not going to be reduced earnings and so forth. Burns. So this is the one that we're all most familiar with. This is the term that we use quite often. No one ever talks about Kelly, really, um, especially in construction cases. Um, we don't have many claims that are just SLU body parts. They're usually the Elbeck body parts, and that's where you find uh, Burns applying. Um, so Burns, the Burns calculation is just more frequently used. Now, Burns outlined how calculations are made when the future benefits are speculative. This means they cannot definitely be determined at the time of the settlement. So there's temporary ongoing benefits. You know, we don't, we don't know when it's going to stop or increase or decrease. Um, permanent partial disability benefits. This is the, 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 the famous caps that we talk about. It can be for 300 weeks, 325, 450 weeks. Um, the claimant can return, return to work uh, re at reduced earnings, so the value would change also. Um, so we can't say for certain how much uh, future benefits the claimant is going to receive, and that's when burns applies. So unlike Kelly, where the benefits are calculated at the time of the settlement, benefits are calculated um, on an ongoing basis. So the claimant's going to continue to receive his payments on the workers' comp side, but it would be at the quote-unquote burns rate, which is the reduced rate, and it's um, calculated using the Kelly formula. So, you know, the lien is usually reduced by um, one-third, and uh, that's the amount that would be your burdens rate. So the payments are going to continue until the claimant's net settlement is exhausted. And after the burdens payments are exhausted, the workers' comp carrier recoups the net settlement amount. 
uh, full payments will resume under the workers' comp claim. So let's just say after a hundred weeks, uh, the workers' compensation carrier has um, has uh, recovered the entire settlement value, then it's going to continue the ELWIC benefits at uh, the, the normal rate, not at the burns rate. BISL, we don't hear about this very often, but this really pertains to the medical portion of the claim. It's really the same. It's the average one-third um, that the carrier would be liable for. Uh, calculated same way the Burns and Kelly is calculated. Um, a lot of times it's not uh, really discussed because by the time we get to permanency and the claimant's getting his indemnity benefits, he's no longer treating. Our treating kind of declines, right? Because he now knows he's getting the maximum of what he's what he could potentially get. So why keep going to the doctor every month or every couple of months to get the benefits going? However, BISL applies in any workers' compensation claim that's open where there is a burns credit um, against the awards or there's a burn situation, I should say, where there's a third-party claim. And the carrier is responsible for paying only its portion of the, the medical bill. So the, the, the courts can decide how that's going to be done, but the thing that we request is the claimant pay the bill up front, then submit it, to the carrier for reimbursement. That is usually the cleanest way to do it. The carrier knows that the bill has been taken care of and just gives the claimant whatever um, the balance is to be reimbursed. Now, so these are all the things that we take into consideration when calculating um, settlement exposure in these uh, multi-jurisdictional uh, claims. We first look at the workers' compensation side, calculate the value, then you look at the GL side, you calculate the value. A discussion has to be had about the lien because that's, I think, one of the most important negotiating tool. In um, the, deciding what you want to do with the lien, you do the potential burns calculation. You look at it against your potential uh, permanent uh, permanency payments that you would be making on the claim, see what you'll recover, and then a determination is made as to whether you want to do a full lien waiver, a partial lien waiver, um, or no lien waiver, right, in exchange for a $0 Section 32, and that's what the global settlement's all about, getting the Section 32 in the workers' compensation claim, and then you're closing out your general liability claim also. The determination of whether to do a partial lien waiver or full lien waiver or no lien waiver is something that's done when balancing the numbers on both sides, depending on what the... Um, the global settlement's going to settle for. A lot of times, actually, the most times the uh, general liability side of the of the of the table um, leads the settlement negotiations. So it's very important for you to communicate with your workers' comp attorney, have them communicate with the general liability uh, defense attorney to see what the numbers look like, what the workers' comp numbers look like, where we are in the workers' comp claim what our potential exposure is in the comp claim, and how they can use the lien or, or lien waiver to negotiate the bigger settlement on the general liability side. In the most, most cases I've seen, we've done a partial lien waiver or a full lien waiver in exchange for a $0 section 32, and then that's used as part of the negotiation to, to uh, quote-unquote shave off some of the 
the value on the GL side because otherwise the claimant would have to be repaying the lien and that usually results in a very favorable settlement. So it's really a discussion amongst all parties, look at the numbers, see which would make more sense. But as I um, went over in my webinar a couple of months ago, usually leaving the workers' compensation claim open uh, creates more exposure for the client, and that's something you don't want to do. When you're resolving the general liability claim, you always want to try to resolve the workers' compensation claim also. All right, so that's it for the factors and um, you know everything that you need to take into consideration in calculating your exposure in these multi-jurisdictional claims. If you have any questions, enter them into the box. I'll take a look. Um, hopefully they come through. Let's see. All right, so I don't see any questions in my end. If you think of anything or you want to, or you'd like to get some worksheets to see how we would calculate these elements and what the values would look like in different situations, I can definitely um, send those over to you. Uh, we went through some of them in a prior webinar. I still have those. I can definitely shoot them over. So send me an email if you have any questions or um, need anything. And as always, if you have any ideas for future webinars, feel free to let me know, and I can definitely incorporate that. But if um, if nothing else, and I'm still waiting to see if any questions are going to pop up, I don't think any is going to at this point. All right, so I think that's it. Um, next month is the final is the final webinar for the year. There you go. It'll be on uh, December 4th. We're going to do a wrap up wrap ups. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the trends that we've seen this year. It's, it keeps getting more and more interesting every year. Um, we'll go over some pertinent case law that we've seen also that has an impact of these construction claims and workers' comp claims in general, but we'll focus on how it can impact your construction claims. So everyone, uh, have a very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for joining me here, and I'll see you right here next month. Take care.